and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I got this 805 Living magazine in the mail last week, and it was their special restaurant issue. On the cover was this big, tall, fancy-looking burger. Well, it turns out it was featured in a, in a 2019 episode of Man vs. Food, and you can get it at the Waffle Experience in Newbury Park. Here's how it's described. Topped with house-braised pork belly and an optional fried egg, the ultimate babe waffle sandwich means business. It mounds a grass-fed beef patty with barbecue pulled pork, cherry wood smoked bacon, onion rings, and white cheddar on an herbed waffle that's also studded with bacon. Never tried it, but looks sort of tempting, right? I have to add it to my list. Uh, what happens is uh, maybe you've tried one of those kinds of things that you see advertised on TV by the big national fast food chains, some new item. And it looks great, and you want to try it. But when you get it, and you take it home, and you unwrap it, it's a far cry from what you expected. Maybe smaller, flatter, soggier, messier, totally unappetizing. Nothing at all like the hype. Nothing at all like you expected. Maybe you've seen some of those comparison photos online, kind of like before and after pictures, you know, before you actually buy one and then after you do, like these. Here's a Subway turkey sandwich as advertised on one side and when you get it unwrapped on the other. A Big Mac as advertised and unwrapped. Here's an Arby's beef and cheese sandwich as advertised and unwrapped. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's that buyer beware thing. And what at first looks really tempting in theory or in a picture uh, can turn out to be anything but when you get it home and unwrap it. Uh, it's all about food styling. Uh, that is the photographing food for advertising. And it's really become its own small industry. And it makes sense. You can't really expect a freshly cooked item to stay hot and inviting until you get around to finally, you know, snapping the right picture of it that you're looking for. And so a few of those in the know have revealed that since pancakes, for example, pancake syrup soaks into the pancake so fast, um, if you spray it with a little fabric protector and then use motor oil instead of maple syrup, uh, looks pretty tasty. <laughs> and if you insert cardboard discs between each pancake in that stack, um, they'll look fl fluffier and thicker. Let's say you need a photo for something as simple as a bowl of cereal. How do you make sure the cornflakes don't get soggy and sink down into the milk before you get your, pro your shot? Well, here's how you do it. You use a, a flour and water dough mixture and fill up most of the bowl with that. Now, instead of milk, you pour in a liberal amount of Elmer's glue that looks just like milk, and it will in the photo. Then you can add your flakes one at a time or top it off with a little fresh fruit, and everything will stay in place till you get your best angle. Spraying fruit with deodorant will give it a shiny look. Might also keep it from stinking when it rots, but I don't know about that part. <laughs> but it comes to mind, right? Need a dollop of whipped cream for that slice of pumpkin pie? Well, whipped cream won't last but shaving cream will, and you won't be able to tell it apart in the photos. Can you imagine being asked to get a shot of an ice cream cone under those hot studio lights? Just substitute a little food coloring tinted scoop of mashed potatoes. Nobody will ever know. Now, it's interesting, right? But is it deceptive? Well, if you make your claim that, if you make a claim that your picture represents how creamy that ice cream really is without actually using ice cream, yeah. Than it would be. Um, but you're not. 
food advertising isn't really about deception. It's really all about that getting, creating that, that I got to have that temptation. Are they intentionally misrepresenting the product? Not usually. And there are regulations in place to protect you from that. Um, what you're seeing is probably how the product was designed to look. It's just that in real life, you know, what you get doesn't always, you know, make the bar of what you saw in the picture. Not on purpose always, maybe, but in practice. You know, we're all about temptation this morning, though. And Satan is surely the prince of it, isn't he? Uh, what better topic could there be to kick off our, our uh, season of Lent, our Sundays in Lent, than talking about temptation? Uh, it's something we're all familiar with. Some people say that if we were just a little smarter, we wouldn't fall into temptation nearly as often. But if someday scientists actually came up with a pill that would make you smarter, would you be smart enough to take it? Ah, or maybe smart enough not to. So you can find products that make that claim all over Amazon right now. They're not tested by the FDA. They're not regulated. They're not approved, but they're out there. So maybe smarter isn't the answer either. The Apostle Paul, who was clearly a top achiever in the new Christian church back in the first century, authored most of the New Testament, went from being a stellar persecutor of the Christian church to being a, a stellar Christian church planter and one of its most persecuted. Yet he was the one who wrote, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I think of Christian author Keith Miller. He was one of the very early proponents of the small group movement uh, years ago. Uh, bright guy by anyone's standards. And yet he wrote, temptation is a strange experience for me. I want to be God's person, but I also have some deep human needs for approval, affection, and the satisfaction of strong physical and emotional drives. When wrestling with a specific temptation, I seem to change into a different person inside. I have a kind of tunnel vision and only see the object of my resentment greed, or lust. All else is blotted out. I'm no longer the smiling, friendly Christian, but am instead an intense and sweating stranger, yet not a stranger, for I know this one so well. Reason waits outside the door of temptation for me. I argue against my conscience and dazzle myself with agile rationalizations, but by that time, the battle is usually lost. Have you ever checked your reason at the door when temptation calls? Even more to the point, think about Jesus. You know, if anyone was, at, was, was uh, likely to not leave reason at the door, it would have been the only begotten Son of God. And still, he became a target of Satan's ploys. Our lesson from Luke finds him in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. Now, admittedly, the things he was tempted to do weren't, wouldn't be probably the same things that, that uh, you'll be tempted to do because um, you can't turn stones into bread or command the kingdoms of the world or leap off the, the, uh, the highest point of the temple without making a literal splash on the pavement. But there's no reason to think that the enticing power of his temptations was any less than ours is. You know, talking about the risen Christ, the writer to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. No, no matter what our literal or even our spiritual IQ might be, temptation is going to be part and parcel of the human condition. And Jesus was fully human and at the same time fully God. Uh, it's as common as, as uh, rain in Seattle or bird-sized mosquitoes in Minnesota or 
honeybees in a field of clover. You can get an umbrella, you can slather on the deep woods off or down a beekeeper's hood, but at some point you're going to get wet, bit, or stung. That's why the 13th century Franciscan monk uh, St. Anthony advised, expect temptation with your last breath. Well, thanks a lot for that good news today, right? But think about this. Even if a higher intelligence could immunize you from temptation, would it be a good thing? You know, certainly the petition in the Lord's Prayer, it says, and lead us not into temptation, would make you think that might be the case. Uh, but the account of Jesus' temptations make us wonder, you know, if, if he could have really accomplished everything he did, become all he is, uh, without this time of struggle in the wilderness, we wonder. As Luke relates the story, the whole point of the temptations Jesus experienced in the wilderness was to drive a wedge between God the Son and God the Father. The fact that Jesus never yielded to temptation means that he stopped that wedge from being driven. He didn't check his reason at the door. But the writer of the book of Hebrews again clearly thinks Jesus tempt, uh, links his temptation with his ministry. He says, because he himself, I'm talking about Jesus, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, He's able to help those who are being tested. And we wouldn't have it any other way, would we? You know, what better thing is there than go to a God who invites us to come to him for forgiveness, but also understands what we've done and why we've done it, who struggled with those kinds of issues. It's not a God up on Mount Olympus that has no clue about our lives. He actually experienced it. He cave into it, but experienced it. And notice, too, the lesson says that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted. Now, you'd think from those words that temptation can uh, somehow have a positive role. The Spirit isn't going to lead him off somewhere where he's going to be killed or something happened to him, right? Uh, it's never pleasant, uh, but it certainly helps us understand who we are and helps us assess our limits, too. It can show us our strengths or maybe our lack of strength in, in our commitment to godly values. Now think about this. Uh, is there a difference between being tempted and yielding to temptation? See, some people would say, well, you're, you'll never even be tempted if you have enough faith. The devil wouldn't even bother with you. You won't even feel it. Is that true? They put it right up there with, uh, if you're tempted, you don't have enough faith, and it's just as sinful as yielding to temptation. I don't agree with it, and Peter Marshall didn't either. He once said, it's no sin to be tempted. Uh, it isn't the fact of having temptations that should cause us shame, but what we do with them. Temptation is an opportunity to conquer. When we eventually reach the goal to which we're striving, God will look us over not for diplomas, but for scars. I love that. Lead us not into temptation is a fair request. It's a great thing to pray for. But given that temptations continue to come at us anyway, the petition is really shorthand for when, they, when we are tempted. Help us not to fail the test. Martin Luther, in his explanation to the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer, writes, although we are attacked by these things, we pray that um, we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Okay? In order to be any kind of real test, um, you have to be able to pass it or fail it. Think of temptation as a road littered with forks. No, not those kind of forks. Okay, Branches, right? Left, right, turn, like those kind of forks. Forks that force us to make decisions. Maybe you remember this from uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland when she found herself at a fork in her road. It says she was a little startled by seeing a Cheshire cat sitting in the bow of a tree a few yards off. 
Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Well, then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. Well, so long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. You know, all our forks aren't so obvious, are they? Uh, at our own forks, do we follow the leading of the spirit or the tempting opportunity to the, of the devil? Does it matter which way we go? Sure it does. Jesus told his disciples the night before his crucifixion, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you also may be where I am. You know, that's where you want to point yourself, well, toward heaven. But it's, it's not always as obvious. Sometimes the, the pull of temptation is so, so strong, it's like, like uh, coming to a, a dead-end road that only goes left or right. And it's obvious sometimes which way is evil, which way is, is right, which way is wrong, which way is right. Other times, though, it's not like that. Uh, it's in the small choices, the slight detours that when followed one after another lead us to ungodly destinations. The 15th century German devotional writer Thomas Akempis wrote about these detours when he said, this is the early 1400s, for the first there comes to mind the bare thought of evil, then a strong imagination thereof, afterwards delight, and evil motion, and then consent. And so little by little our wicked enemy gets complete entrance because he is not resisted in the beginning. Now this man was not only a monk and a writer, he was also a copyist. He's said to have handwritten, hand copied the entire Bible four times before back in the early days of, uh, you know, when they had printing presses spread around everywhere. What a job that would be. So um, he knows something about his scripture, right? And it's not surprising because he does that what he wrote sounds a little bit like what uh, Jesus' brother James wrote. The apostle says something like that when he reminds us, uh, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We call it the cycle of sin. First desire, then sin, and the wages of sin, death. Desire, sin, death. That's how it works. Satan placed the idea of being like God in Eve's head, and Eve acted on that desire by eating fruit from the one forbidden tree, and sin and death entered God's once perfect creation. Uh, it was subtle, but it was effective. Remember the scene in Cecil B. DeMille's version of the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston version, when all the people of Israel start worshiping the golden calf at Mount Sinai. And Moses is up on the mountain conversing with God. He's going to bring the Ten Commandments down with him. They waited 40 days and nothing happened, and so they, they give up on him. There's this evil, evil guy with him named Dathan, Ned Dathan, yeah, this character who leads him into idolatry and played perfectly by Edward G. Robinson. And the scene is so over the top, it's almost comical. The shiny calf is hung with flower gardens, the writhing bodies of the worshippers dance, and a shapely woman is draped across the altar at the idol's feet, passed out in pagan ecstasy. If all temptations were that obvious, you know, we'd be a whole lot better at avoiding them. But most of them don't come along, trumpeting their evil intentions with that kind of Hollywood fanfare. Take the King David's story, okay, with his affair with Bathsheba. First, the king up on his vantage point, high up on the roof of the palace, um, looks over and sees a beautiful, unsuspecting Bathsheba taking a bath on hers. 
Did he immediately cover his eyes and turn away? Do you think? I think he ordered his servant to fetch the royal binoculars. <laughs> He's a guy, after all. Now, you won't find that. can't give you a chapter and verse on that, okay? you got to read in between the lines. Next, he inquires about her. He sends messengers to bring her to the palace. And before long, he gets to know this married woman in the biblical sense. Now, was the sin simply accidentally seeing her? No. That was just a fork in the road. Now, by seeking to know more about her, he took the wrong fork. And then he, he went on to make a whole string of bad decisions that ultimately resulted in his epic moral collapse. The other problem with temptation is that it just keeps on coming. You know, we don't get to make one tough decision in life and then coast the rest of our lives on that one single victory. If you read about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, out of context, um, with, with the rest of the gospel, the rest of his story, uh, you can kind of get that idea. Uh, but later on in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus announces to his disciples that um, he's headed on a one-way trip to Jerusalem and the cross, uh, his, his disciple Peter jumps up and tries to stop him. Now, Pete, Jesus snaps at him. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. The temptation to turn off that, that main highway he was walking, the road to the cross where he would suffer and die so that we might live, uh, was very real. Like Jesus, you and I are constantly faced with those kinds of decisions. Some of them are more obvious choices of right and wrong. Some of them are a lot more subtle. That's things that begin a whole chain of events. And we won't be tempted with the same things Jesus was. Temptations seem to come tailor-made for each one of us. But at the root of any temptation, I think, is that fleeting thought that maybe God isn't there to strengthen and, and, and steady us, to face those trials, to carry us through. Or that he might not care about enough, enough about us. Or maybe that he's not even watching. He's so busy with the war in, in Ukraine and, and uh, global warming and the drought in California. He didn't have time to watch over you. Jesus used God's word to defeat Satan at every temptation. He had no doubts about the continual presence of God. God doesn't miss a thing. And so we should have no doubts about his presence either. Now, since we know that our journey through life is going to be littered with these kinds of forks, with choices that will be either right or wrong, we need to ask for God's grace and his power to resist and discern uh, even before we come to them. That's how we'll stay prepared to, for, to uh, face whatever might come our way, to be able to resist whatever it is that the devil's selling that day. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation every single day. Now, Satan is powerful. And he's persuasive, and he's persistent, but he's not irresistible. You know, James would also write, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. God is never far from us. Sometimes we have to pull ourselves away from whatever it is that's distracting us in order to see him. But he's there, watching over us, caring for us, reaching out to us and especially loving us, even at the forks of life. Amen. And now, when that very, now that very, have this very special peace of God that passes all understanding. Uh, may it guide your hearts and your lives in Christ Jesus. Amen.